Well, good morning. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. Um, And we'd like to say to you, if this is your first time especially, welcome to Grace Community Church. If you were here for the first time, especially if you are a freshman at Campbell University, your presence indicates one of two things or maybe both. Uh, One, you care about spiritual things and you want to find a church early on and that's, that's a good thing to do. Do it now because if you wait, it won't happen. Or two... Uh, you word got out about the potluck, and you appreciate good food. So uh, that, that, that could be true of a whole lot of you today. And I can promise you, if you will stay after the service, you will be able to eat as much good food as you can possibly handle, student or not. If you are a freshman at Campbell, welcome to Bowie's Creek and beyond. Um, you never just go to Bowie's Creek. You go to Bowie's Creek, and you learn about all the area from about 30, 40 miles from there. If you're a returning Campbell student or a student in middle school, high school, some other university, or if you've been out of school for 40 years, the message today is for you. Scripture's like that, isn't it? I mean, even though Scripture, God's Word is contained in these 66 books that we call the Bible, it's larger, it's big enough, it's flexible enough, it is true enough to transcend all generations, all cultures, and even all personalities. It's not that the Bible speaks this truth to you and this truth to you. It speaks the same truth to all of us. But we all get it no matter where we are in our lives. Scripture is that big. Nothing else is like that. But we would expect God's Word to be that. So it's relevant to all peoples in all cultures in all of history, and it's even relevant at school. One of the surprising realities about being a freshman on a university campus, especially if you're staying, well, if you're staying in the dorms, you're staying in an apartment, doesn't matter. So all the choices that you have for yourself, you may wish that you could speak to your parents or your friends, or you may be thrilled to be making those choices on your own, but you have to make them on your own because your friends and parents, even when you're talking on the phone, they don't understand the context of the the choices that you have to make. And so it's kind of like you're making those choices on your own. And in life, all of life, at all ages, some choices are more important than others. Some choices have far greater, the decisions that we make have far greater consequences than others. And we're going to talk about choices. We're talking about choices over these three weeks, but it's not exactly like you might expect. If you're here for the first time, we're in the middle of a three-week series on Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, If we are reading any book, chapter 6 is a pretty good place to start, wouldn't you think? I mean, you know, you just pick up any book and start in chapter 6. We can't do that, so we can't, we can't do it in Romans. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about, about context here in just a, a few moments. Um, we're we're going to do a quick review, not only of chapter 6, but of all the book of Romans. We did this last week. We'll do it again. I promise you it'll go quickly. 
Paul's letter to the church at Rome is, is the fullest explanation that he gives of the gospel. Gospel simply means good news. And, and specifically, technically, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins. But really, the good news doesn't mean anything without the bad news first. So in, in some senses, we consider it all, all of Scripture, a part of the gospel. But in Romans, Paul takes a logical step-by-step going through the book and telling us uh, that humans, all humans, their condition apart from Jesus, the importance of what he did on the cross, the way we're saved and, and, and made right with God and what that means for us who are in Jesus. Uh, so since we're in Romans 7 today, let's look at the context for what we're going to learn. In the first 17 verses of chapter 1 of Romans Paul mentions the word gospel four times in his introduction. Four times. He's he's setting the stage that this is the gospel. What I'm going to be telling you is the gospel. Then he moves directly to the bad news, and he spends a long time telling us that all humans, to the worst pagans, to the most godless, thoughtless pagans in the world, to the most moral people in the world... All are under the condemnation of sin. And there is nobody who is not a sinner. Therefore, there is no one who is not. That's a lot of negatives. I I understand that. A lot of negatives. There's no one who is not a sinner and under condemnation because of our sin. But then in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we see this wonderful, incredible news that God put all of our sins on Jesus. And for those who believe in Jesus, the wrath of God is... It's kind of like Jesus is here and God is there and he's pouring out his wrath and we get behind Jesus. It's like we get behind the cross. And Jesus absorbs all of the wrath, the righteous wrath. Not wrath like we think about wrath. Not wrath like your daddy, you know, used to say, you better straighten up, boy, I'm going to you know, do this or that to you. Not that kind of anger that is just because you're messing with my life and I'm going to mess with yours. Um, That's not the only reason parents, you know, get on their kids, just so you'll know. But it's never. God's wrath is always perfectly righteous, and Jesus took the punishment that we deserve because of our sin, which is eternity in hell. And it's like Jesus on the cross suffered for all eternity, he suffered the equivalent of all eter- my hell for all eternity. In the next portion of Romans, we recognize that when we believe that, and of course that will involve repentance of sin, which simply means to acknowledge our sin and say, God, I'm so sorry for who I am, for the ways that I have rebelled against you. But I believe that Jesus died for me and I place my trust in him and him alone. And by faith, Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account. It's like going to the bank, you know, like um, I I would go to the bank and and somebody said, and and the teller said, you know, you've got uh, $3 million in your account. I said, wait a minute, I didn't put that in there. They said, no, David Calvert did. And then they'd come and take the teller away. 
Um, but it's like somebody credited your account. And all of a sudden, everything is yours. And because of that, you have been moved. All of humanity is under one of two heads, Adam or Jesus. Everybody is under Adam. But when we believe, we are transferred to being in the position that we are in Christ. We are under his headship. Everybody over here is doomed. Everybody over here is saved for all eternity. When we believe, that's our position from now on. Because of that, Romans 6 tells us, I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to sin. I don't have to. So, we talked about this last week. Does that seem to be your reality? If you have believed that Jesus died for you, then he lives in you. And since you're no longer in Adam, you don't have to sin. So may I ask you a personal question? Even if you're a Christian, do you sin? Really? What's wrong with you? Same thing that's wrong with me. Romans 7 is going to help us understand the ups and downs of the life of a Christ follower. Our text today is primarily in Romans 7, but I'm going to read Romans 6, 12 through 14 because of its connection to chapter 7. We don't do this every week, but most Sundays of the year when we read Scripture, we ask the congregation to stand in respect for the reading of God's Word. So would you please do that as I read together Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. All that has gone before this, all that has gone before that is this. Because of your union with Christ, Paul then says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Father, thank you that you have promised us that sin no longer has the power to rule the lives of those who belong to Jesus by believing in him. It certainly doesn't feel like it sometimes. And, and I pray that in this process of, of living a life that is pleasing to you over these three weeks as we're studying your word, that you would make scripture come alive to us. Give us understanding. Give us faith. Lord, to believe you at the level that will affect our behavior. Help us not to just be more committed to doing the right thing, although we all desire that as followers of Christ, but help us, Lord, to desire to know what you have done for us at the levels that will change us. And Lord, if if there would be those here today who have not yet made that decision to trust Jesus, for salvation, then I pray that your Holy Spirit would show them their sin and then the wonderful 
glory of trusting in Jesus. I pray that the gospel will not only be preached to those who don't know Jesus, but to those who do know it. We need it just as much. So open our eyes, our hearts, as we read the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. That last phrase in verse 14, it's a little bit unexpected. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, we might have expected the Apostle Paul to say, Sin will not have dominion over you. Sin will not rule over you. You will not struggle with sin because you were united with Christ. You're no longer... Apart from Christ, you're no longer in Adam, but now you're in Christ. Or we might have expected him to say, sin will not have dominion over you when you start making the right choices. But this just blows your mind when you really think about it. Sin is not going to have dominion over you. You know why? Because now the law is not important to you anymore. You're under grace. You're not under the law. Now, whenever I say Paul said something... Of course, I mean God said this. Everything in the book of Romans to this point has been quite logical and sequential. Step A leads to step B to step C, D, and then he comes and he says, you will not be ruled by sin because you are no longer under the law, but under grace, and it's kind of one of those record, you know, it's like, what? What did you just say? We were condemned under God's law. Jesus took our punishment. We moved from being under the headship of Adam to under the headship of Christ. And now we no longer have to sin. And the reason is, not only that we're united with Christ, but we're no longer under the law, but under grace. Most of our lives are spent trying to figure out the rules and then deciding whether the rules benefit us or whether it would be better to bend, break, or or find a way around the rules. You know, what, what, all right, let me just understand what's expected of me here, and then I'm either going to conform or I'm going to find a way to come up with my own set of rules, to come up with my own laws. We actually like rules a whole lot better than we think we do. I mean, that's why self-help books are so popular, five ways to improve this or that in your life. And when it comes to the Christian life, we tend to think in terms of, you know, if I can just get this one thing right, if I can just get that one thing right, then everything will be okay. So help me get control of this area. Help me to overcome that. Help me to start doing this, (coughs) and I will be successful. Excuse me. Now, Paul is saying the reason you will be successful in living this righteous life is because you're no longer a slave to the law. The grace of God is now working in you. We left off this explanation last week of of the book of Romans through chapter 6 in a triumphant place. We don't have to sin anymore, but that can be not only discouraging, it can be almost disconcerting if you are a believer, and yet you still struggle with sin. Especially if you struggle with a particular sin in a serious way. You just have difficulty overcoming it. Why is that? 
Well, Romans 7 tells us that even though we are no longer in Adam, Adam is still in us. He remains in us and he will be with us until the day that we die. It's not a matter of choosing not to sin. It is our nature to sin. And we will sin till the day we die. Do we have Christ living in us? Yes, we do. We also have Adam living in us. And don't kid yourself that when you've made a set of rules that you can conform to, that that's the spiritual life. It's not. Holy Spirit lives in us. So does the old man, the sin nature, Adam, the flesh. A lot of different names for that old guy that's constantly saying, you really ought to be doing this. You know, it's like the old good angel and bad angel. You don't see that much anymore. Those of you who are over 30 would remember it, though. Good angel, bad angel. Uh, Maybe it's still going on. I haven't seen it lately. The remarkable thing about the flesh is that it likes the law. Again, if you're honest with yourself, you really like rules. Now, that seems kind of like a contradiction because when is the last time you've been to a movie where keeping the law was celebrated? You know, you've read a book. You've heard a, you've heard a lecture on, if you'll just keep the rules. I mean, we, in our culture, we celebrate questioning authority. Even so, we like rules, but the secret is we like the rules that are shaped to our own liking. I mean, I, I might not like your rules necessarily, but I'm going to find a way to get on top, and then I'm going to have some rules of my own that I expect everybody else to live by. Why is this? Once again, sin nature in us. Old man likes to measure himself against other people to confirm his suspicion that he is better at keeping the law than other people are. And so just like the Pharisees, we stretch the law, we we narrow it, we expand it so that it works for us. Paul tells us all about that in Romans 7. He says, look, this was my experience. He begins this portion of his treatment on sanctification or spiritual growth because that's what we're talking about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. When we're lost and Jesus saves us, God saves us, that's justification. He justifies us. He makes us worthy to stand before him in all of his righteousness and holiness. Sanctification is the process that he makes us more and more like Jesus. And what I just said is key to understanding this whole thing. He is the one who makes us more like it. We tend to think of... God saved me, now it's up to me. No, you're not getting anywhere that way. You're not getting anywhere that means anything that way. You may look good and you may be good. But you're not growing spiritually if you're doing the work of sanctification in you, which will never really happen. It's a contradiction. You cannot sanctify yourself any more than you can save Yourself. So Paul begins his treatment on sanctification by telling us that obligation to the law is like a marriage. And like a marriage, you are committed to your spouse until one of you dies. That's why we say until death do us part. But now, 
If you are united to Christ, if you're united with him, you have died to the law. Or we could say that the law is dead to you. All of your efforts to make yourself good enough to, be, to purchase entrance into heaven and to be acceptable, acceptable to God are no longer a part of you. You are not married to the law any longer. And you're, in fact, you're married to Jesus and your desire will be towards him. Now, Paul is addressing this same objection to grace over and over. He has said, it's not keeping the law that makes you righteous. It is God's grace that makes you righteous. He declares us to be righteous. And people will object and say, well, if you say that, then people will just live any way they want. Remember back in chapter 5, he said, where grace abounded, sin abounded more. And Tony Coor was sharing with me the other day. He heard a pastor say, and, and it's true, it's, it's in the text, it's in the Greek. This is what it means. Where grace, where sin abounded, grace was there in superabundance. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And so people say, well, yeah, you just tell people that and they'll live any way they want to. Um. The law makes no further demand of me, so I can just do what I want. That, that's like saying to your earthly spouse, <clears throat> well, I'm glad we're married, honey. Uh, that means I can live any way I want to. And absolutely not. There are a lot of good things about marriage, but living any way you want to is not one of them. I mean, all of us are married to imperfect spouses, but we love them like crazy, right? You better say amen to that. Or you're liable to get that, you know. When we are married to Jesus, the Holy Spirit reminds us what it was like to be under the condemnation of law. Now we've been freed to live in the Spirit and to live with a new spirit about us. We don't live as in, okay, as long as I can follow the rules or I'm going to do this or I'm... But we live with this abandonment because of our love for Jesus Christ who died in our place. We've never felt so alive. (laughs) Almost all of the people who are reading Paul's letter or hearing Paul's letter read, as the case would have been, had been saved by Jesus when they were adults. Not many here, I wouldn't think. How many of you were at least 15 years old when you trusted Christ? How many of you? That's not, that's not many of us. So, you know, many of you will say, when I say, hey, when were you saved? You will say, and legitimately so. You can say this very legitimately. I never remember a time that I didn't believe in Jesus. That's, that's wonderful. When you're saved, when you're older, uh, there is often a very sharp contrast between who you were and who you are now. I, I was 18 years old when I was saved. And believe me, before Christ, I was a slave to a lot of passions, drugs, other passions that just, that just ruled over me. I had tried so many times to reform my life, but it just didn't happen. I mean, time and again, I would say, this is it. Okay, I'm changing. 
But it was obvious very early after the Lord saved me that something radical had happened inside of me. And I mean, I was different. Overnight, I was different. I wasn't going to say anything to anybody because I was suspicious that I couldn't change my behavior. But I, it just blurted out, and it wasn't me that had changed my behavior anyway. It was the Lord who had changed me. And I quit almost all of the sinful things that I've been doing. Drugs, language, lust, rebellion against authority. Smoking cigarettes, that was a hard one. I really had a tough time giving that one up. But the Lord eventually helped me to do that. So overnight, I'm radically changed, and it just keeps going on. I'm, I'm living for the Lord, and I'm beginning to think, you know, I think my struggles with sin are over. Um, I'm just, it ain't happening anymore. It's very obvious that what the Lord has done. It's not that I was thinking I'm so, such a hot shot. It's just what God had done for me. Well, it was that for a while. Then I began to think I was a hot shot, you know. Look at what I did. <clears throat> why, why, was, why, why was I so susceptible to that temptation to think I've got it done now? Because I was deeply in love with Jesus, the one who had loved me and died for me. So why would I sin again? Why would I keep sinning like I did? I was no longer in Adam, but in Christ. Anybody else have that experience? You know, you think, like, this is it. I mean, man. And then after maybe six months or so, it's not, it's, you start struggling. Well, in Romans 7, Paul explains why I was wrong about whether I would sin or not, sin or sin again or not. But his explanation goes back to, his own life, his perspective as a very religious person. So that's the majority of us in here. Uh, just a handful of heathen, heathens in here before you were saved. Although two or three, I'm, well, no. I'm, I, um, but a lot of religious people, and Paul is going back to that. He was religious, and the law had this profound impact on him. If I could figure out how to quit making that sound, I would, believe me. I'm sorry. Now, you weren't even thinking about it until just then. Um, Paul had been really wrapped up in externals before he was saved. He wanted everybody to recognize that he was a law keeper. And God help you if you weren't a law keeper. He'd let you know right now, this is the way you've got to live your life. <laughs> Can't believe so-and-so. Paul had already told us in Romans 6, we will overcome sin because we're no longer under the law, but in, under grace. But Paul was, was very much under the law, and he was happy being under the law because he could measure himself. And he could say, listen, I recognize that I am right with God because I keep his law. In Romans 7, 7, Paul asked the question, is the law sin? If the law is the one that it actually, I thought it was a good thing, but it, now I find that it's not. Is the law sin? And he says, absolutely not. The problem is not with the law, but with me. When the Holy Spirit showed Paul 
that the law actually reveals God's standards, not only externally, not only do you have to keep the laws, do not kill, do not commit adultery, make sure to keep the Sabbath, honor your father and mother. It also said, you will not covet. You shall not covet. And when Paul recognized that, that, that the law intruded not only on his behavior, but also on his thoughts. He was fully exposed. Based on outward appearances and on actions, nobody looked better than Paul. Here's something odd. When, when the Lord first revealed the fullness of Paul's inability to keep the law to him, two things happened. First, he realized he was as good as dead. I mean, he already thought you were dead because you didn't keep the law as well as he did. Now he says, oh my, it's, I'm in trouble too. I'm as good as dead, as he indicated in verse 11. The demands of the law overwhelmed him, overwhelmed him and in effect killed him, doomed him to spiritual condemnation, which is why his deliverance by Jesus and his covenant like marriage-like relationship with Jesus was so meaningful. But there was another odd thing about the law, as Paul saw it, in all of its righteousness and terror. It excited the flesh in him to sin. Once the law said, you cannot have this, it is not yours, the desire for that very thing increased in Paul. Probably wasting my time here. I doubt you've ever had that experience where you want something that doesn't belong to you. I mean, what's the best way to get a child to do something? Tell them not to, right? Tell the kid not to, and, you know, and they think they're so sneaky, but they're, you know... They're going to do it. As odd as this is going to sound, the more spiritually minded you are, the more you are of the righteousness that God exists and you see it in his law, and the more tempted you are to live your own way. That is Adam in you seeking to be God. Once again in verse 13, Paul asks, Is the problem... With the law? And the answer is the same. No, it's not. We're not talking about the law has got a problem. It's not the law has a problem with me, which, well, of course it does. But really, I have a problem with the law. I can't keep the law. In fact, Paul gives one of the primary purposes of the law in verse 13, that I might see sin for what it is. It's a good thing Paul saw his own sin at the level that he did because that led him to put his trust in Christ. So in these next verses, where Paul is going to talk about a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, that's the struggle before he was a Christian, right? No, it's not. Something really important happens in the Greek grammar. Uh, Look, vocabulary is important in Greek. Grammar is 
super important. You know, it's like where vocabulary abounds, grammar super. Well, no, that's not a good. It's just grammar is really important. So in verses 7 to 13, Paul has been speaking in the past tense. This was my relationship with the law. But then in verse 14, he moves to the present tense. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Strong words that are much stronger in the Greek. Last week, we talked about Greek verbs being classified into moods. Greek verbs have tense, voice, and mood. You remember that Greek Grammar lesson is a very simple one. When a, when, a, when a verb is in the indicative mood, it's indicating something. It's telling you facts. It's giving you information. When it's in an imperative mood, it's a command. In Scripture, imperatives are usually based on the indicatives that have gone before. That's the pattern. Like, for instance, in the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, six chapters in the book of Ephesians, almost all the verbs, and maybe all of them, I didn't check this out, but maybe all the verbs in the first three chapters are in the indicative mood. In the last three chapters, it's almost all in the imperative mood. This is who you are in Jesus now. This is the way you're supposed to live. And by the way, the fact that Paul uses imperatives over and over is not going to allow us to think that we don't have a role to play in this Christian life. But the work of sanctification comes because God's Spirit enables us. Much more about that next week. So that's New Testament Greek about moods of particular verbs. This morning, our focus is on Greek verb tenses. Next week, interestingly enough, we're going to talk about voice. So we hit all three primary parts of a Greek verb um, in these three weeks. This morning, though, Greek tenses. It's important to know not so much about all Greek tenses, but when when the Greek tense is the active tense, It indicates a continual action. You know the difference between continual and continuous. Continual is ongoing. Continuous is without interruption. Active uh, tense in the Greek indicates an ongoing action. It's not that it's uninterrupted, but it continues on and on and on. So typically a verb in the present tense indicates this action is not a one-time thing that never occurs again. Unless the context tells you differently, it's, a, it's an action that happens continually. So when Paul shifts to the present tense in Romans seven fourteen, he's not only saying this is my current experience as a believer, but he's saying that it's an ongoing experience and As you will see, this experience is quite a doozy. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. Now, this is, I I very much believe Paul speaking as as a Christian. I don't understand my own actions. I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't understand your actions. Actually, I say that quite a bit, you know. I say, well, I don't get that. It's another to say, I don't get myself. And I say that actually more than I say it about you. I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want. I don't do the things that I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. 
In other words, Paul is struggling with the flesh. He's struggling with sin. Why does he hate those things? Because he's married to Jesus. He doesn't want this sin to have any place in his life. And he says, I hate it, but I, I end up doing it. Now, if I do what I do not want, what I don't want to do, if I do those things that, that, that are disgusting to me, I agree with the law that it is good. See, I've just confirmed that the law is right, and it's not only right about my actions, it's right about my thoughts, my intentions. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, Paul can't say that when he's over here in Adam. He can only say that as he is in Christ because now Adam's still in us, but now Christ is in us, and there's this war going on inside. For I know that nothing good dwells in me who I am in Adam. I, there's nothing good before Jesus. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul is saying the same thing that you have said. I hate my sin, but it's the very thing that I'm drawn to. How many times are you disappointed with yourself? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I? I love Jesus and God's law, but I cannot obey God to save my life. We've already been told we're united to Christ, so sin has no power to rule over us. Yet there's something inside of us that drives us to do the very thing that we hate. A principle law is used in all different kinds of way here, ways here, and I just don't have the time to go into it. But he's saying it's almost like a law that makes me sin. There's, there's God's law, but then there's this law, this thing inside of me that just drives me. To sin. There's so much to say about these verses, but know this that failing in the Christian life is part of the sanctification process. Why would God allow that? I mean, why is it that God, if He wants to bring glory to Himself, wouldn't He just clean me up and keep me clean? Wouldn't that be the best way to do it? Look, we don't know anything about God's glory. In fact, God's going to always get his glory. We want to participate in that. And we ask him, Lord, keep my heart and my mind on you. I think one of the reasons that this happens is a reminder that not only is God the one who justifies me, he's also the one who sanctifies me. I don't have any power to do it in my own strength. I used to say it like this. I wouldn't say it quite this way, but you get the idea. In order to become a Christian, in order to be saved, you have to acknowledge that you are the sorriest, dirtiest, rottenest, good-for-nothing sinner who ever walked the face of the earth. In order for God to really use you, you've got to realize you're twice the sinner you thought you were when you were saved. 
And the more spiritually minded you are, the more aware you are of Adam. But you know what else you're aware of? Your desperate need for Jesus. If he doesn't do it, I'm not going to grow spiritually. I may look like I'm growing spiritually, but always remember this. Adam has no power to produce a spiritual life in you. Well, where does that leave me since I'm in such a mess? Well, without a proper understanding of the entire process, it can leave me in despair. Look at Paul in, 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 in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You get the sense that Paul is almost going crazy with this. I mean, this didn't happen in a five-minute period that it took him to write this out. Ten minutes. This is a, a period of time. It's in the present tense. <laughs> so, once again, been there, done that. And I think most of you have too. What's the answer? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Look, a lot of people like to ask, you know, if you struggle with sin, if you can't seem to get a handle on sin, even though you want to, you better check your salvation. I, honestly, on the basis of Romans 7, I would almost say, look, if you never struggle with sin, you better check your relationship with God. You've found some way to make the law work for you. And if you never see sin in all of its ugliness... That's why Martin Luther said, sin boldly. I'm not suggesting that, by the way. Martin Luther had a big context for saying that. But it's like, don't mess around in your mind thinking that you've got the ability to be good. You are not good apart from Him. But with Him, you serve God in your mind, the law of God in your mind. So Romans 6, Jesus lives in you. You don't have to sin. Romans 7 Adam continues to live in you, and you will struggle until the day you die. Even with sin driving you almost out of your mind, it feels like. And that there's no way you can be saved. And since the language, you could, you could just feel that way. Since the language is in the present tense, it indicates that, you know, this is not a one and done thing. It's like... You, you're saved, you get excited about loving the Lord, and then you really start struggling with failure. But then you come into Romans 8, which we get to next week. It's a glorious, glorious, wonderful chapter. And then you never go through Romans 7 again. No, it's, it's, you're going you're gonna to hit it again. Honestly, the Lord, has, I, the Lord has just put me in a good place these days. But I've been in Romans 7 recently. And I'm tempted to think I'm not going back there. You know what? I, I will. But what I believe the whole picture. And by the way, Romans 7 does not make Romans 6 null and void. You understand what I'm saying? It's all true. This is our position in Christ. And it's a legal it's a legal. It's legal language, but it's more than that, too. Romans 8 is going to tell us how it all flows together. And so the deliverance that is promised in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Even though this conflict rages in me, 
my hope is that Christ Jesus the Lord will deliver me from this sin. Does he mean, one, we will be free from sin on the day that we stand before Jesus, or two, we will overcome sin as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, as we're going to see next week in Romans 8? Most likely he's saying that while there's a partial victory here, there's going to come a day when the victory is complete. And, and we don't fully get done with Romans 7 until the day we stand before him. <clears throat> Romans 8, 1 is connected. Honestly, I think the absolute worst chapter division in the Bible. You know, the chapter divisions, chapters and verses are not inspired. They were put in for our benefit much later. Uh, this was one, and God superintends all of that. I recognize that, but this is one that I just really question. Because you come out of Romans 8 and it's like, I mean Romans 7 and it's like Romans 8 is completely different. But he says on, on the heels of all of that struggle and failure and disappointment. He says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great place to end today. And a great place to start next week. So here's the application. What are you supposed to do with this? Today... At the potluck, just every so often, even if you feel ridiculous, look across the table and say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, you will look ridiculous, but it's okay. It's truth, and we need to know it. And you know what? That truth motivates us to live in the ways that God has designed for believers to live. To, to, to fulfill the good works that God ordained before the foundation of the world. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand together. Let's say that together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One more time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those. Thank you, Brad. The Apostle Peter had some comments about Paul's letters. In 2 Peter, he says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul has also written to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do all the scriptures. Therefore, you, brother, beloved, take care not to be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be the glory now and to the day of eternity and all of God's people said